Amen. Hey, thank you, Kevin, and uh, worship team for leading. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Um, good to see you guys this morning. Thank you for making your way here. Uh, and if you're watching online, thank you for doing that this morning as well. Um, I don't know if you all have caught the news a couple weeks ago at Asbury uh, University. The, uh, some call it revival, some call it renewal, some call it awakening that went on in the, the university. Um, at the end of a chapel, the speaker invited, or the uh, worship team invited anyone just to linger and stay to continue to worship. And they continued for almost 10, maybe 12 straight days, 24 hours a day, just continued to come and come and come and stay and stay and stay. And in the, the course of that, there's some question about what that is going to mean for God's kingdom work in our country, maybe around the world. And uh, in, in the middle of all that, I remember reading an article, I think from Christianity Today, about how the leadership of the university met daily in the cleaning closet in the chapel just to figure out what do we do next. And you can imagine on a university campus how surprising this work would be that basically they had to stop classes for a week, a week and a half. Everything was put on hold and all the structures and systems that they have built to keep the system running is all of a sudden put on hold and God's like, hold on a second, I'm going to do something different maybe that you haven't ever seen before, so we're going to change it all. And as we look at what goes on at Asbury, and we don't know all the net results of it yet, one of the principles that we learn easily from this from Asbury is this simple idea that God doesn't mind surprising us. He doesn't mind taking the things that we expect and changing them drastically. He simply doesn't mind surprising us. It doesn't bother him that the way that we expected life to go, it's not going to go that way. You ever been surprised by God? You ever been surprised that the person that you thought would never come to faith in Christ did? You ever been surprised by the lessons that you learned from your own children? You ever been surprised... You've been surprised at the person that you thought you could actually never forgive you have? You've been surprised how God works in you, maybe in the people around you? One of the things about surprises, and the reason that surprises are so important is this, that, that surprises, I'll put it this way, being surprised means that there's some hidden assumptions that were challenged. Whether it's as simple as going to a birthday party, if your spouse or a friend um, deceives you lovingly into thinking that you're simply going out to dinner, but you end up at someone else's house and there's like 23 people there to, to surprise you for, for an evening. What happened? Your assumptions were challenged. You're assuming you're going one place, but something else happened instead. Surprises do that to us. We all have assumptions about how our days go, how our lives go. We all think sometimes that that person who doesn't ever deserve forgiveness, there's a reason why we think that. We have an assumption about how egregious or harmful or painful their sin was. We think, well, it's going to be impossible for God ever to reach them, and then he does. And surprises do that. Surprises make us rethink our hidden assumptions about how the world works. They simply do. This morning in our Backstory series, I want to talk about and look at a series, a a time in the nation of Israel where God surprisingly used people, in a particular someone, to lead the nation in what I will call a very surprising way. For me, this has revealed some hidden assumptions about how I see the world. And I might encourage you this morning to allow yourself to wonder, are there any hidden assumptions about how I see the world in light of the story that we're about to get into? So to get there, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair near you. That's our gift to you. I want to invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Judges. 
All right, Old Testament book of Judges. It's in the opening third of your Bible. You can find that on your phone in the YouVersion app if you want to. But Judges um, is where we're going to be this morning. And, and the book of Judges is an interesting book, an interesting period of time in the nation of Israel. And I want you to turn, if you can, to Judges chapter 2. We're going to read uh, several verses there, beginning at verse uh, 10, just to set it up. Because what happened is... Um, the nation of Israel has taken over some of the promised land by this point. They've taken over much of this area, but then the, their leadership has died off. So in Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, let's set it up so we understand what's happening in this moment. Beginning at verse 10, it reads this way, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil... In the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtaroth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges. And pause it right there real quick. Judges. When we think of judges here, we just think of people in robes in a courthouse. This is different. You can also read slash leaders, slash rulers, slash governors. He raised up people who were seen as the leader in the nation. He raised people up to lead the nation. So there we go. Then the Lord raised up judges or leaders who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and save them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who had oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so what we've just read, and there's a lot of reading, thanks for staying with me, what we've just read is a summary of the book of Judges. This is what happened over and over and over and over again in the, in the nation of Israel in the time of Judges. Basically, this cycle is really simple. The nation does wrong. They realize it. They repent. They know they're stuck. God raises up a judge. A judge comes, saves the day. Everything works really well. The judge dies. And people are like, let's try sin again. Sin again. It goes badly. They feel stuck. They're like, how about we repent? Let's repent. Raises up a judge. Everything is fine. Judge dies. Let's try sin again. We sin again. I mean, it's just over and over and over and over and over again. And the judges that God raises up are very unique, and I would even argue surprising. He raises up a, one judge named Ehud, or Ehud, depending upon how you like to pronounce that. If you know what's unique about Ehud, you get a star in your crown for Bible trivia knowledge, all right? If you don't, you're a normal human being, and that's okay. Um, Ehud, or Ehud, was the only left-handed judge. Isn't that interesting? He was left-handed. That's interesting that the, 
um, that the text would tell us that he's left-handed. What it actually means when it says that he's left-handed is the Hebrew means that he was bound in his right hand. So being left-handed is not a thing of honor, but generally a thing of shame in the ancient Near East. And so God is raising up a judge who, when you would look at him, he would, his right hand isn't functioning properly. There's something wrong, quote-unquote, with him. And God raises up this man to be a judge. He's left-handed, and he uses his left-handed ability to slay a king personally and leads the nation of Israel. Surprising. Gideon, you may have heard his story before. Gideon, you may or may not realize Gideon's story. He had incredibly incredibly low self-confidence. Listen to his reaction to what happened when God came to him. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Like Of all the people that you could have chosen, God, you're choosing the least clan, and I'm the least in the least clan. How can, how can I do this? It's surprising that God would use Gideon, someone of such low confidence, to do what he did, to raise him up to lead an entire nation. There's another guy named Jephthah. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. He was an illegitimate child. Check out what we read about Jephthah right here. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior for sure, but let me give you his background. His father was Gilead, and his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, then they drove Jephthah away. So now we have stepbrothers driving their stepbrother out. And the reason was that, that, put it this way, they said to him, you were not going to get any of our inheritance in our family, they said, because you were the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. And so God looks around in the whole nation of Israel and like, who can I use to lead the whole nation? Let me get the son of a prostitute who has a bunch of scoundrels around him. I'm going to use him. Surprising what God does, isn't it? The person that I want to look at who is also a surprising judge is found in Judges chapter 4. In Judges chapter 4, as you find your way over there, you're going to find the only female judge in the nation of Israel. The only judge or leader of the nation who was a woman. This is surprising. That in a male-dominated world, God would look around and say, I'm going to use this woman to serve as a judge to lead the entire nation through this period of time. And it's her story that surprises me and also reveals some hidden assumptions about how I think the world might work or how I thought the world might work. And so, if you will, go with me to Judges chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, I'm not quite sure how to say that, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to serve, to have their disputes decided. So she sent for Barak, son of Abinom, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give, you, and give him into your hands. And Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Most certainly, 
I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course that you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And so Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command, and Deborah also went up with him. Let's just look at what's happening here real quick. Go back to the opening verse, verse 4. Deborah was a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. Those are two, actually, terms or titles given to her. So she was, first of all, a prophet or a prophetess, depending upon the translation you read, and she was also a judge. And so from the very beginning, this is very intriguing to me, that, again, God uses a very surprising twist in his plan, in his kingdom. God uses a woman at the highest level of leadership to save the nation. As a judge, she was the judicial leader, she served as a governing leader of the nation of Israel. She was the final functional authority at that time. She led that nation. That alone is surprising. To add to it the fact that she was a prophetess is also very surprising. It's not what one might write up as one thinks about the primarily male-dominated leadership of the day. It's definitely not what one would write up. And as a prophetess, she was also a spiritual authority in the nation. So she spoke as if the voice of God was speaking to the people. A prophet, by the way, if you can imagine it this way, a prophet speaks to the people from God. A priest speaks to God from the people. Their posture is different. The priest might offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and their sin to God, but a prophet speaks God's word to the people, and in this case, with authority. Look how she speaks to Barak or Barak in verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinom from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, and listen to, again, the strength of her words here. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't an invitation. This is strong. There's no doubt. This is a command. I just want you to know, Barak, God is commanding you to do this. And then he, she goes on to explain, take 10,000 men and lead them up, and we want to take over, right? And we're going to use you to do that. Right? We're going to use you to do that, but this is what God wants you to do. He's commanding you to do this. And the problem that Israel had is that the chariots that this nation had um, were too much for the Israelites to fight in the valley. And so they could win in the hills, but in the valley, the iron chariots were a technology that they had not the ability to compete with. And so look at verse 8, how Barak responds to her. This is so interesting. He says in verse 8, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. This is interesting in that there is a, a deference to her, a, a giving to her of the authority that she has. There's no contempt from a he was the key male military leader. There's no contempt in his voice for her leadership. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And why does he have this approach? I would argue because he recognizes that the blessing of God is upon her. And if you're going to go put your life on the line, do you want the blessing of God with you or don't you? And I would argue for sure, we certainly do. And so Barak goes into battle, and if you know the story, they end up winning the battle. They fight with Sisera's army, and they, they just they, they, they kill them all. That's what the text says, they kill them all. And Sisera runs, and he's the one they're really going after. Not the only one, but he is a key leader. And he's, he's running. They chase him down, and 
he finally, in fatigue, finds a tent, all right? And he hides in a tent because he thinks that the people who own this tent are friendly to him. So look at verse 18 of chapter 4. We pick up the story there. Jael, who's a woman in this tent, went out to meet Sisera, who's now running away in, you know, fear for his life, and said to him, come, my Lord, come right in, don't be afraid. And so he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. And he said, stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say, no. What a good plan. I wonder where he came up with that one. But J.L., Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him where he lay fast asleep, exhausted, and she drove the peg through the temple into the ground, and he died. Wonderful. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Yep. We're not going to pause on that too long because that's rather gross. However, this is what women did. They pitched tents, so she was very comfortable. She was very comfortable with a, with a tent peg and a hammer. This is what, whether we like it or don't like it, doesn't matter. This is what just happened, is that women, when they were going to move around and set up tents, women were, were driving the tent pegs in the ground. So she, she did that. And again, what Deborah said at the beginning to Barack is, if, you, if I go with you, then the, woman, the glory will go to a woman. And indeed, it did to JL, and in some cases, to uh, Deborah as well. So as I think about the story of Deborah, all right, I think about the story of Deborah and the fact that she was, here's the deal, she, she was a judge, she was the key governing leader of the nation. God, under her leadership, blessed the nation. She was a prophetess, the only other person in the Old Testament with both titles is Samuel, who was both a prophet uh, and a judge. But outside of that, that's it. So she had a spiritual authority with her, she had a governing authority with her, and she had significant influence over the military. All right, now, that's surprising to me as I think about what the nation of Israel did in its history. And so I had to ask myself the question, maybe you might want to ask yourself this question too, and that is this, what does the story of God using Deborah in these ways teach me about a woman's capacity to lead? What is the story of God, excuse me, what does the story of God using Deborah in these ways teach me about a woman's capacity to lead? Now, I have to ask, and again, if, if surprises if surprises reveal hidden assumptions, then the surprise of reading through the Old Testament, seeing Deborah all of a sudden in leadership, reveals some hidden assumptions about sometimes, and if reflecting now on me, some hidden assumptions about my own background, my own personal backstory on a woman's capacity to lead. And so now I'm going to jump from the text. I want to just share with you personally, all right? This is, maybe if this helps, I'm going to put this over here for a minute. I need to come back to it. But I'm going to step away for a minute from the text just to share some of my personal backstory with you. And this may or may not be your story, but this is just mine. Um, my personal backstory, I'm going to start by sharing actually another story. Um, I went to Dallas Seminary, many of you know that from part of my educational journey. There's a professor there named Sandra Glahn. She's very well respected um, at Dallas Seminary, one of the great thinker, uh, PhD um, Anyway, she teaches Hebrew, et cetera. Anyway, great lady. Um, and she wrote a story, and it really captured some of what I have run into over time and something I wanted to share with you, maybe to jump into some of my own backstory in this. And I'm just going to read this part to you because she wrote this in an article. She said, after attending a lecture at the seminary where I teach, which is Dallas Seminary, she said, I saw a female student whom I had not seen in months. And after greeting me, she enthusiastically told me about the exciting ministries God was allowing in and through her life. 
Then she concluded with a puzzling statement. It's just sad to think that God is having to use me because a man somewhere has failed. Excuse me? I was pretty sure I must have misunderstood. God wanted a godly man to lead, but since he apparently didn't, I get to be a part of plan B. I'm glad for God to use me, but it makes me feel badly that someone failed. I heard a marked sadness in her voice. I asked where she got that idea, and she said it was right out of the book of Judges. Deborah's story, in fact. Someone had taught her that a godly woman leading meant that a man had failed somewhere. God uses a good woman only when a good man can't be found, she said. We talked further, and she explained more, pointing out that Barak was supposed to be the judge, but when he turned out to be a wimp, God raised up Deborah. What makes you think Barak was supposed to be the judge, that he was plan A, I asked, noting that Barak doesn't come into the picture until Deborah is already well-established as a leader and a prophetess. In fact, Deborah summons Barak and speaks God's word to him before we know what Barak is going to do. But God knew ahead of time what Barak's response would be, and we know God would prefer to use a man to lead instead of a woman. How do we know that? The story of Deborah. Circular reasoning, she wrote. My experience growing up, and I don't know what yours is, but I'm just going to share mine, in a more conservative culture is that my tendency that I saw was when I don't see women in a more prominent leadership role around us, we can think that women don't have a right or an ability or a capability to have those roles in broader society or even other environments. That was my experience growing up. Female leadership for me that was more upfront or out there or more quote-unquote obvious was often called into question. Male ambition to lead was encouraged. Again, my experience. But female leadership was channeled in a different direction and often questioned. Often I heard that women who lead publicly were there because they were feminists or they were only there because men had failed to quote-unquote man up and lead. And therefore they were functionally God's second best choice for leading. That's the story that you just heard from Sandra Glahn as well. So the message that I got growing up was clear. And by the way, no one sat down and taught me this. It was both taught to some degrees and caught in my environment. And that is that leadership is really a male-oriented field that God designs for men first. And men as physically stronger overall than women and less prone to emotional swings than women were often the better choice for most leadership positions. Men were able to keep their heads about them better and able to use their strength to protect and to serve those around them. And I have to say that I think what is true about the strength of men's leadership at its best is indeed true. That men do have those strengths, and that is a beautiful gift from God. But I don't think it needs to be an either or. I think it can be a both and. Because I think what is great about men's leadership and men's ability and men's strength does not negate what is also great and beautiful and strong about a woman's capacity to lead. And I don't know about you, but as I look at Deborah's story, it surprises me. If I'm honest, it surprises me. It is surprising in the Old Testament. And surprises reveal hidden assumptions about the world and how we think the world works. What I just shared about some of my story may or may not be part of your story. That's okay. But I might encourage you to take a minute and reflect on if there's anything that surprises you in the story of Deborah, are there any hidden assumptions about how I think this world works that might be worth 
exploring. Because surprises do that. They reveal hidden assumptions about how things work. Now, I want to move forward this way because this can be um, a challenging conversation to have, right? So let me try not to make it so challenging. My goal is to encourage all of us this morning. That is my aim, and I hope you feel that ultimately as we go through this. All right, so here's, here's a couple of things just to, to add to this and maybe bring some clarity if I can. I think there are some questions. There are some questions that we have today that this text wasn't intended to answer. This text doesn't say everything there is to say about women in leadership. In fact, I'll put it this way, this isn't even a text primarily about women. <laughs> this isn't a text primarily about women. Just like it's not a, a text about how Ehud is a left-handed judge, it's not a judge, it isn't about Jephthah and being an illegitimate child and being able to lead, it's not about Gideon's insecurities. They're all a part of the narrative, but this is really a story about God. The book of Judges is a story about God using people to lead. This is a story about God. It is a story about God using the leaders that are available and ready and that he determines are the right ones to lead to accomplish his purposes. It is a story about God. This is what it is. It is a story about him. He uses the best leader available. Hundreds of years later in the New Testament, we read about a developing and new organism called the church. And in there, in the church, there are discussions in the church about roles of women, and that is a legitimate discussion, all right? That's a legitimate discussion. That's not what Deborah's story is addressing here. This is showing us the leadership capacity to some degree. God is going to use who he's going to use to lead his people. And just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're not a candidate. In fact, Deborah's story, the fact that she's a woman isn't even really stopped and paused on. It's just part of the narrative. It's a story about how God leads through this time, okay? Second thing I'll say is this. We shouldn't confuse roles with leadership capacity. I think it's an important thing if I can try to hit that just for a second. There are times, even in the Trinitarian relationship, where Jesus says that he is in submission to the Father. He's in submission to the Father. What does that mean? You know, there's this relationship of roles, knowing your role, that doesn't change the leadership capacity. Jesus is not inferior to the Heavenly Father. Some of you know, uh, on the side, I'm a JV basketball coach at Peckway Valley. Does the fact that the athletic director is above me in the org chart mean that they have a higher leadership capacity than I do? I wouldn't argue that on the basis of our roles. It simply means that they're in charge of me right now, but it says nothing about my leadership capacity nor his. It simply doesn't say anything about that. There's a difference between roles and leadership capacity, and I'm speaking to leadership capacity here this morning. Okay? So young women, let me encourage you this way. Um, I don't believe that God limits your leadership capacity on the basis of your gender. I think Deborah's story speaks to this. Your, your leadership capacity can be as high as any male or female around you. And leadership capacity doesn't distinguish male from female. And also, I'll say this, pursuing high levels of leadership is not required to prove something. You don't have to chase something that isn't on your heart to prove anything. I'm not trying to push that in any way. Okay? Young men, let me encourage you this way. Be careful. Be careful how you look at your female counterparts. Be careful how you look at the young women around you. Your strengths are indeed your strengths. 
and they should be maximized. However, just because a woman's strengths and leadership are different doesn't make them weaker or inferior. Excuse me. And just because a woman desires to lead doesn't make her out of line. In fact, she may very well likely be in line. And I'll say this, anyone, regardless of gender, who wants to use leadership to gain power for themselves misunderstands the role of leadership. Anyone who desires, male or female, a leadership role so they can exercise influence, so they can be powerful, is missing the heart of leadership. And finally, let me say this about God. God does surprising things. He does what he's going to do with whom he's going to do them. This is a story not about a woman, although we can't ignore the fact that God did use a woman at the highest levels of leadership to lead a nation. He will do what he's going to do, and he breaks our categories sometimes, and he is surprising. Deborah's story is a story about God. He moved in the nation the way that he was going to move, and he wasn't hesitant to use the best leader at that time to accomplish his purposes, and that best leader's name was Deborah. Here's a question for you as we wrap it up, and I land this plane. All right, what surprises you about how God works in this story? What surprises you about how God works in this story of Deborah? What surprises you? And maybe what surprised you, I, I don't know, I'm not going to fill in the blanks for you. I'm not, I, that would not be helpful. And I don't know what it is that surprises you about this story, but as we look through the story of the Old Testament, it is no question a male-dominated leadership field. And somewhere along the line, we get some people, not only Deborah, but she is certainly a key one to look at, where God throws in these women who lead at the highest of levels in governance, who are a prophetic voice from God, and who do have influence even over the military. And it begs the question, God, what hidden assumptions might I have as I influence the women around me Dads, as you raise your daughters. Leaders of companies, as you work with the employees around you. Young men, as you use your own power and strength around you to either encourage or not encourage the women in your life. We think about the story of Deborah, it begs the question about God and what he's doing. And I might encourage you to ask, what surprises you about how God works in this story? For me, when I took a minute, what I shared with you personally a few minutes ago were some things that I assumed about women's leadership. Your assumptions might be totally different. Those things, some were taught to me, some were caught in my lifetime. And it might be valuable for you to take a minute too and say, do you share any of those? And how do my personal hidden assumptions line up with what I read in the story of Judges? And is there anything that I assume that might need to be challenged? for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of what God will do, because he's not bothered by surprising us. That's what he does. Thanks for listening this morning. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. And I want to give us a minute as we move to prayer to just take a second to breathe together. Take a second to breathe together. And settle for a second before we move on to what's next. What have I heard? What have I heard? What concerned me? What maybe dysregulated me a little bit? What may have been hard to hear? What, if I had a chance to, would I raise my hand and say, yeah, but 
Or what maybe even am I suspicious of right now? Because I don't know where it settles with you. But I know this can be a little harder. So I want to give us a minute to breathe together. My goal is to encourage and support and help us. Not to provoke unnecessarily. So let's take a minute as we, as we go to prayer. Let's go to prayer together. We're going to take a second to settle and breathe here together. Father, I pray that you would help us as we engage texts like this. They are clear in that they're here, but they also raise other questions for us. Father, I pray that you would help us in this space to breathe for a minute, to settle, to think, what have I just heard? What do I need to respond to? Where do I feel a need to move in one direction or another? Either that I'm challenged and I'm encouraged. I've never heard it this way before, and I'm ready. Wow, I'm ready to lead. I've been freed to see that God does indeed use men and women. It doesn't limit leadership capacity based on gender. But maybe it's also raised some real questions for you. So together, as a body, hearing this right now, we're going to give it a minute just to settle and to breathe. And ask God to bring to light for you what it is that you need to hear, to do, to ask, to wonder about, or how in how you relate, or even just in what you've heard here this morning. So we're just going to take a minute to breathe settle to reflect. Let's do that right now. God, we want to thank you for how you work in all of our lives. We want to thank you for surprising us. Because if you did everything the way we wanted, we would be God and you wouldn't. And hidden assumptions are hard to face. But I pray that you would help us to face them for your glory and for the benefit of those around us. This is a story, God, about you about you working, about you using both men and women to lead your nation at a significant time in its history. And so I pray that you would continue to awaken our own hearts to what we need to see and hear. we can be people who are willing to be used by you in the ways that you would like to use us. Encourage us in our leadership desires. Give us clarity and love and grace and deference for each other. Help us not to limit leadership on the basis of gender. Help us to understand the distinction between roles and leadership capacity. 
and to love one another well through spaces that sometimes can be so easy not to. Father, we love you. We know that. We pray that you'd lead us and guide us and give us strength to lead, to serve well. In Jesus' name we pray.